this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, in recording this show, I sometimes get the sense of how an interview is going to go, right? So in my next guest's case, Adam Glickman, he had a condom business, right? So he's hawking condoms in his dorm room, grows to be a multi-million dollar business. And my sense was, as we went through the interview, it was going to be this kind of Pollyanna, wonderful story about how young kind of college student does good, sells his business for a truckload of money, and it kind of rides off into the sunset. What I got was a really different story. What you're going to hear is Adam Glickman's roller coaster journey, starting off very successfully, but also going through a deep funk where... Um, a series of bad events in his business and personal life led him to a very, very, very dark point in his life. Eventually, he pulled himself out and did sell his business, but not for some multi-million dollar exit, for a relatively modest sum. I think in many cases, Glickman's story is emblematic of what happens in many, many cases across the world every day in the sale of businesses. And that's why I think this story is so important to get out there. I loved talking to Adam, and I hope you love hearing his story as much as I loved listening. Here's Adam Glickman. Adam Glickman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. So Condomania, <laughs> I think I know what you guys sold, but tell me the business. Yeah, we were, uh, we were in the rubber business. We um, started as America's first condom store. How do you get, okay, I got to ask, how do you get into the, the condom business? I gotta, there must be a story here. Yeah, there's a, there's a backstory. Uh, back in the late 80s, I was a student at Tufts University in Boston and very entrepreneurial like you're, you know, a lot of people who, who tune into you. I was just one of those guys that was selling whatever they could get their hands on from the time they could figure out how to do it. When I arrived at Tufts, it was the late 80s and there was a lot going on in the world. Uh, of course, and and one of those things was the emergence of the AIDS epidemic. And uh, although I was very entrepreneurial, I had a couple of businesses going on campus. I was moving futons from factories to dorm rooms and doing all sorts of stuff. But I was also tuned into sort of the social fabric of things. I was a sociology major and a philosophy major, and one of the one of the emerging trends was the fear and uncertainty around HIV and AIDS, and uh, everybody telling us that in order to protect ourselves uh, in this emerging health epidemic, uh, our best resource, uh, short of absence, was the use of a condom. But I was part of a generation that wanted very, that wanted nothing to do with the very product that we were told could save our lives. So it was in a sociology class. It was a sociology 101 on um, surveys of public attitudes on emerging trends and topics. I decided to do a survey on attitudes towards condoms. And learned what I what I already knew was that 
people love to hate this little product. It was awkward. It was stigmatized. It made us feel uncomfortable. We didn't want to buy it or use it. Um, and I thought, isn't that curious given all the messages that we're getting right now about how to protect ourselves? So um, I put on my entrepreneurial hat and put a generic condom in what looked like a matchbook cover. One side was emblazoned with a cartoon of our mascot, which was Jumbo the Elephant. The other side said a safe Jumbo is a happy Jumbo. <laughs> and I went out I went out around the university knocking on doors just at selling, selling these condoms. And half the doors were slammed in my face like I was some porn-peddling pervert. But, but the other half bought. I ended up selling... Uh, a thousand condoms in two weeks for a buck a piece. Um, and, and that's a lot of pizza and beer money when, when you're a college student. Right. And, uh, uh, but the, but the aha moment didn't come for another couple of weeks when guys all over campus started coming up to me, guys I didn't know, giving me high fives and props and slaps on the back and way to go at them. And I was trying to figure out what was happening. What was, what I, what I realized is that these guys were giving me props because they, well, quite frankly, they were having sex. And they were having sex because they had a condom at the moment they needed to have it. And they had a condom available at the moment they needed to have it because, well, we were able to change behavior and change perception. Whereas condoms previously in most college campuses were scarce and hard to come by because nobody wanted to use them. We turned a condom into a school souvenir, almost like a, a Frisbee or a, a, a tough coffee mug. It just became something that everybody had. And because they were available, people were using them. So the aha moment was we could change perception by changing the way people related to the product. We turned this lowly condom, a medical device, into a school souvenir. And and in that change, we changed the way people related to the product. It, it stripped away it stripped away the stigma. So that was the aha moment. I graduated in 1989, launched a full-time uh, business with a college buddy of mine um, doing these custom kind of matchbooks. That led to uh, 1990 in the invention of the glow-in-the-dark condom. And we sold a million of those around the planet in 1990, and that was a total trip. And then in 1991, <clears throat> we decided to take the next step forward in our evolution of um, repositioning the condom uh, and, and, and public attitudes towards condoms to change behavior. And we opened America's first condom store on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village, uh, all of 350 square feet. Hmm. And so you're all of a sudden a retailer of condoms. This is obviously kind of pre-internet, really. You're not e-tailing them. You're, you've got a physical store. Yeah, pre-internet. I mean, I, I think Windows had only come out a few years before. Uh, in fact, I remember my cash register on my first store uh, didn't even – I don't even think Windows was available. We were running a PC register program on DOS. Um, it, it, yes, it was a totally another time. But we were a retailer, and uh, the store – was a huge success uh, in terms of traffic and sales, uh, publicity, notoriety. Uh, it, it was really the right idea at the right time. And I quickly that summer, uh, I was age 24, got on my Jeep, drove across the country, gave the keys to the New York store to a 21-year-old female who I trusted uh, and, and drove across the country and opened up my second store on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles and then settled down for, uh, for a couple of years, licensed some stores out to other locations, a lot of hard lessons learned there. Those didn't go so well. They were great stores, but really crappy 
uh, agreements. I wasn't sophisticated enough to understand the perils of licensing and franchising and was flying by the seat of my pants and some real painful lessons there. But the, the next um, phase of the company really emerged in 95, 96. And now all of a sudden there was this thing called the internet. And uh, I remember just jumping into it, uh, trying to understand what it was, uh, teaching myself HTML and Photoshop, found a, uh, a programmer. And in 1995, we were busy building out our first website. In 90, January 96, we went live. And we were one of the first 100 sites on the internet, Seriously? e-commerce sites on the internet, with an actual shopping cart. Because in 1994, 95, there was some e-commerce out there, but it was all menu-driven. So you'd, you'd go through this electronic catalog, if you will. You'd get to a page at the end, and then you'd click some boxes about what you would like to order. We teamed up with one of the very first shopping cart software providers. We were customer number three. And we launched uh, before customers one and two. And if, so we, if there was ever a product that was ideally suited to the internet sales, I mean, it's it's light. It's kind of embarrassing to buy. I mean, it fits, ticks every box, right? Light every box. Ship. Yeah. Yep, every box. And so while we were ahead of our time in many ways, just in terms of e-commerce in general, uh, it, it took it took a while um, for the masses to understand what this medium was and how to actually shop through it. Uh, we, we, you're absolutely right. It was a product made to sell online. So by 2000, we really emerged as an e-commerce company. I closed my Melrose store after a decade, kept the New York store open as a flagship, but we were really an e-commerce company selling some four or 500 products to people in 50 countries around, around the, around the world. And, uh, it was very exciting. Um, and, and the future looked very bright. Um, and in 2003, we really, um, really uh, took the next step forward in actually producing a proprietary product with an inventor and it was the world's first line of custom fit condoms in 55 sizes and uh, there are probably some people shaking their heads right now thinking really really 55 sizes but the truth is when you go from three inches to 10 inches and and you're fitting you're fitting it to the centimeter uh, there are proven benefits for a custom fit product and so we introduced that to the world. It became really a cornerstone of who we were. And um, we caught fire between 2003 and 2006 um, in terms of building our company and our platform and our presence and taking all that exposure we had over a decade and a half and leveraging this amazing product direct to consumer around the world. Roughly, what are the sales of the company at this point? We are um, approaching $2 million. Um, at that time, uh, the the New York store um, became a very small percentage of that. Everything else is being driven online, and we are experiencing terrific year-over-year -year growth, driven mainly by this new product line, the 55 sizes. <clears throat> One of the wonderful things about it was that not only was it unique in the marketplace, we were the only people who had it, uh, and it was a proven product to actually deliver benefits compared to your off-the-shelf stuff, but that people were coming in and for every dollar they were spending on that product, they were spending 40 cents on something else we sold. So it was a real driver of our business and and things looked really, really bright going into 2006. Which belays the question, something must have happened in 2006 to make it less bright. Yeah, yeah. And, and th this is important because when we talk about our personal trajectory and the arc of our businesses, and at least mine, this was now 
go, going to 2007 was a pivotal year. Um, and it started, uh, it started in a very unfortunate way. It, I'm not going to bore everybody, but essentially due to a technicality on the original medical device application for this amazing line of 55 size condoms, um, due to this technicality, the FDA decided that they needed more information about this product line. And although we had data that it was safe, we had studies that were done, uh, it, it got weird. And the inventor, who was my business partner on that side of the business, got weird. And um, unfortunately, make a long story short, the FDA uh, forced us off the market with that line in the beginning of 2007. So I had um, probably 50% of my, 40, 50% of my total revenue just stop on that day. And um, I think maybe somewhere north of 30 or 40,000 customers that had purchased the product over the previous three or four years. And, um, and I thought there was going to be a, a short-term fix to it, and, and there wasn't. Um, and so I had to start thinking about how to rebuild my business around this lost product line. And although I was optimistic that maybe a year or two or three it would come back, uh, two years, three years, um, I, I, needed to, I needed a plan then. Um, what I didn't plan on was November of 2007 when I was out playing a softball game with a bunch of my buddies and I was coming around second base. I hit a screamer out into center right and I stumbled awkwardly over second base. Now, I'm 43 years old at this point. I'm in pretty good shape. I love playing ball. And I stumbled so awkwardly that I broke my left hip before I hit the ground. It was a freak accident, and I had emergency surgery that night, nine inches of metal put into my left hip, and spiraled into a very dark place over the next three or four months. Dark in what way? Dark in that um, I felt uh, physically... um, physically dark, meaning I, I, I lost touch with my body. I couldn't walk for four months. I was on all kinds of painkillers and anti-anxiety stuff because the painkillers were making me feel weird. I wasn't, I wasn't reacting to the, the sleeping pills and all the things that, that you might take in some moderation to get through something like this. I was probably taking more than I should have because I just didn't know better. And, um, and, I, I started to move into a little bit of a midlife crisis thing that I'd been doing condomania for, gosh, at that point, um, 15 years. And I didn't know what I had to show for it because I lost my prize product. I, I lost, I felt like I lost my way with the company. And what I really realized is that that year I lost my way with myself. And that, I, I, I believe that that was my body telling me that I was at my own breaking point and I needed to reassess and rebuild and figure things out and decide what path I wanted to be on. And so it was a real wake up moment for me um, personally um, to decide who I wanted to be. Uh, I, I've been married to a wonderful woman for, uh, well, quite a long time. Um, 30, uh, we've been together 30 years. We met in college. We've been, we've been married over 20 years and we have amazing 13 year old daughters, twin daughters. So I had young kids at the time. Um, and, uh, being a father was certainly a part of my calculations. Um, and so it was, it was, 
it was a, it was a rough stretch for me uh, going into 2008 uh, for sure. What happened next? I mean, it sounds like you eventually pulled yourself out. How did you get out of this hole? Um, I credit largely the entrepreneurs organization that I had joined as a member in 2003. And you're, and, and you're f- referring to by the noun entrepreneurs organizations, short, short form EO, yeah. uh, as opposed to a, you know, any random organization for entrepreneurs. That's exactly clear. right. So, okay, yep. So for those, for those who don't know EO, uh, it is a global network of entrepreneurs. You have to own your own business or being a majority owner, um, doing at least a million dollars a year. And it brings together like-minded people to share experiences, good, bad, ugly, um, uh, and, and to share best practices and life experiences so that we can learn from each other and um, rely on each other, uh, both on a, on a micro sense, small groups, macro sense, global network, have access to great speakers, great thinkers, great events. Um, and support each other on these journeys. And so I had been very active um, in EO starting in 2003 and built up the fant- a fantastic network, did a lot of leadership stuff, president of the, of the Los Angeles chapter. And it was um, in 2008, as I am now learning to walk again, and I'm getting off these terrible drugs, that an opportunity presented uh, itself to apply to the global board of directors, of which there were 10 members from around the world, given my prior leadership stuff in EO um, in the five or six years before that. And uh, I felt half broken when I applied and um, somehow managed to be accepted as an incoming global board member for three years. And that became my shining light. That that became my beacon on the horizon, um, that I had an opportunity to move past myself and and to learn and to grow and to engage in a way that I'd never done before. Um, and so with the support of my wife and my kids, I, I plunged myself into that. But there was a huge cost to that, John, which was while I felt it was what I needed for my soul, it was really the last thing my business needed because my business needed me. I had already been through a very rough year. I was emotionally starting to check out. I physically checked out. Uh, we, we lost our core product. And now I'm chasing this new shiny object, which is amazing as it was, and I don't regret it, was taking me even farther away from my company. And, and that ended up uh, being a very costly decision. In what way? Well, the company... Um, the company continued to go downhill. Uh, it, it lost its its beacon, which was me. It lost its its point on the horizon, which was me. It lost its, you know, I was the founder, uh, that classic driver of all things the business, and uh, I had some good people in place, but um, there's no substitute for that founder's energy and vision and leadership uh, at every aspect. Um, and, and the people who were working for me and, and, and our company had the right to um, question the decisions I was making. Uh, where was I spending my time? What was I, how, how important is, do they think the business was to me when I'm halfway across the planet um, hanging out with entrepreneurs doing amazing things? So uh, by 2010, it was clear that the the business needed I, I needed to either jump back in and do this amazing um, push to to reinvigorate the company through reinvigorating myself 
or I needed a way out. And there was no other option at that point for me or the company. And frankly, I had I had burnt out. Um, I think the loss of that product, um, those those custom fit products, in two thousand and six, followed by my own painful journey into two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, two thousand eight. Uh, the choice became clear that I needed to do whatever I could do to prop up the company in a legitimate way. Um, realize that strengths um, cover its weaknesses uh, in terms of making sure that it got they, they got some attention and try to market the company for sale because I needed to move on. Uh, it had been too long and and um, and I, I wasn't doing this amazing brand justice. I wasn't doing our customers justice. I certainly wasn't doing our employees justice and I needed to move on. And, and it's probably a decision I should have made earlier, but um, I think I needed to go through some of my own stuff first to get there. What a what an amazing run! So, I mean, I guess roller coaster journey might be a better choice of words. So, what did you do to get the business ready to go to market? It sounds like you weren't prepared to spend five or ten years, you know, doing all the sort of preparation work. You you needed you wanted to get it done relatively quickly. So, what were the sorts of things you you did to get the business ready to go to market? I went out through my network and I found some local business brokers uh, in the Los Angeles area. And um, it was through an actually friend of a friend um, and uh, met these guys, liked them a lot, and their business model worked for me. There were no upfront fees. They come in, they, they, they do an assessment of your business. Uh, they work with you to understand what you have, where you want to go, what you want to do, what what are the the strengths of the business, what are the weaknesses of the business, and then they package it for you. And then they they're commission only. They were commission only brokers, and because I had a personal relationship, um, I was immediately able to establish trust with the business broker who became almost an advisor, and he uh, did a really great job of doing two things, maybe three things. One, understanding me. Uh, and where I was in this process. Two, understanding the business. Uh, and what are the things we needed to do to shore it up, to get it ready for sale? And and then three, package it. How do you package it to attract the right buyer? And uh, that was really valuable. Uh, went through that process and found a, a likely buyer, um, not through the brokers, uh, but through other parts of my network. And spent six months with my brokers, uh, helping to package it and get it ready. And we, John, we literally, after six months of due diligence and all the, all the stuff that goes into actually preparing a company for sale, negotiating the fine points, um, go, the checklist of all the due diligence items, the eleventh hour, the deal fell through. And boy, you know, after what I had been through the prior two three years. That was hard. Why did that it fall through? The, the, the group on the other side um, claimed there, there was a consortium of three or four guys. They were each putting in X dollars, uh, and together they were going to make the acquisition. And what I was told was that one of the guys just got cold feet um, and, and pulled out and without a lot of explanation. And, and I think – one of the lessons I learned from that was that I didn't really know my buyers. I, I had there was a point guy on the other side that I had a very good relationship with, who I began to really trust, 
and didn't really understand the mechanics of the purchasing process on his side. So where's the money coming from? And who are the different players? And uh, I just trusted that he had that all worked out. And, and, and he didn't. Uh, and I think he got blindsided a bit too. And so maybe there were some lessons from him for him as well in that process. But for me, I operated too much, I think, on trust that um, that he had it worked out and I didn't really understand the full mechanics. So um, it, it fell apart at the, the last hour on his side and then it was poof. Uh, no deal. So the broker has gone through that you, this LA based broker has gone through and, and started to package the business. How, how is, is that broker sort of finessing or massaging the fact that you've gone from, you know, $2 million in 2006 in terms of revenue down to what were you at in, in 2010, roughly? Yeah, we were probably half of that. Um, so not in the right direction for most, no. <laughs> most brokers no. want to see. So how did they kind of spin yeah. that? I, I think, the spin was, um, I mean, certainly the, the, the company's value was much discounted off where it had been four years ago. So we weren't, we weren't trying to sell the same company that we had four years ago when we had this product line. We were selling a different company. Uh, obviously, it was Condomania. But it was different in, in the sense that our, our sales uh, was coming from a different product mix. We were, we were emphasizing maybe more soft assets. We had a tremendous exposure uh, on the internet. We we were placed very well in the search engines. We still had great traffic coming into our website. We were still making nice sales. Um, so I think we were very transparent. We told the story. We told the story uh, of the company going back to 1991. Uh, that story included the loss of this product, but we still had those customers in our customer base. We were still selling them other products. There was the hope that perhaps that custom fit condom line might come back one day. Um, and as an interesting side note, it, all these years later, it's probably going to come back in the next few months. But I, I digress. Um, so we, we, told, we told the story and we were very transparent about it. And, and we, were, we came up with a, with a value that was really reflective of where the company was today with probably a greater reliance on some of these soft assets um, such as the branding and the, 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 the traffic and the web domain and, and uh, the exposure that we got rather than just the, the hard numbers uh, and the number of active customers because we, we had obviously taken a big hit on those um, in the few years prior to, to, uh, to, to that time. So a million in sales, was it profitable, break even, just losing money? Like what were you at in terms of profits? Uh, it it was okay. Um, it was paying the bills. Uh, we were servicing some debt um, we took on along the way um, and some bank lines and loans. Uh, and so we were, we definitely had some some, some debt we had to deal with. Um, I had done some friends and family rounds uh, getting to um, that point. So I didn't own 100% of the company. I was still in control of it. Um, but, but there were some other people to answer to as well. Um, so, you know, we, we were, we were, we were doing okay. Uh, but it, it wasn't, you know, if, if it was really just a cash machine and a lot of entrepreneurs I know found them, have found themselves in places where they built a great company, they lost a passion for it and it just became an ATM and they hung out and they, they just continued to hang on to it because cash flow is great. Why not? That wasn't my situation. Um, um, and so, 
it 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 was generating some cash. It was keeping things afloat, but it uh, it, it wasn't enough that I could I could say this is uh, this is worth keeping or valuing in a certain way because it, it was so it was so uh, profitable. So what happened after? After you got over the disappointment of the the first initial deal falling through, what was the next step in the process? You know, it, it's funny when 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 in entrepreneurial circles, a lot of the circles I've been in, they they there've been a lot of talk, a lot of studies about what are the characteristics of entrepreneurs that make them entrepreneurs? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Are they hardwired? Uh, but it, it, there's so much interesting talk around that. But one of the one of the traits that seems to come up and up again and again and again is resiliency. Resiliency. That that the guys and, and, and women I know who somehow find a way just have a resiliency. And so discovering my own resiliency was part of this. And we already talked about some of the, the stuff I had been through. And here it was again, another low moment. Um, so personally what I did was I, I took from that recent experience of the failed sale, all the things that were good. What did I learn? And I learned, I learned a boatload of stuff. I, I learned, I had spent six, nine months learning how to sell my company. And so I took the best of my learnings and I started again. And I made a checklist. These are the, these are the 10 things that I need to do in the next six months to make sure the sale doesn't fail. What were the 10 things? There were things like um, I need to go back and um, well, one in terms of sort of a more macro view, I need to understand my buyer better. Uh, I need to understand their motivation. I need to understand their source of capital. I need to understand their timeline. I need to understand their urgency. I need to understand who's making the decisions. I need to understand their long-term goal and their short-term goal. So I pledged that I would do a better job of asking good questions in, in, in the early in the process. Two, there were weaknesses pointed out along the way in the company that led up. I don't, I don't think for a second they were the cause of the, sa- of the failed sale, but they were things that became obstacles along the way. Um, and there was things around maybe some financial reporting um, that I needed to make sure was cleaner or stronger. Um, there was some um, debt that if I could pay off and just be done with it before going into the next uh, sales opportunity would be better. Um, there were just some things that that I realized the first time around were um, creating a, a drag effect on my ability to sell the company. And so I, I learned from those things and um, decided I was just going to pick myself up. Uh, it didn't happen day one. It happened in those next 30, 40 days, especially with some of the support I was getting from my uh, EO brothers and sisters. Um, but I was just going to learn from it and I was going to go at it again. And and again, you did. And you ultimately found a buyer. Maybe talk a little bit about that. So this is um, this is interesting. There was a, an EO member uh, who I'd known for a long time who – um, was was becoming, this is now 2010, 11. Um, she was really on the forefront of being a social media maven. And she was one of the very first people I knew who spotted the intersection of, of social media and commerce or social commerce. And she was talking about things that, that nobody was talking about five, six years ago. Um, this idea that, uh, that Facebook 
would drive more revenue than Google was just a ridiculous thought in 2011. But she ended up being right. And so I I was doing very little in social media for Condomania, even though we have probably one of the most social products on the planet. Um, I, I was doing very little and I was slow to to uh, adapt and adopt to social media. So she, she um, was working with a small group of investors out of Canada that were looking to leverage her experience in social media to build an e-commerce portfolio. And um, she had been pounding on me to, to do more social media uh, in, in my company. And after the failed sale, she came back at it again, Adam, we got to do this, this, and this. And um, uh, I looked at her one day and understood what was going on in her world. And I said, you know, you have such a great handle on all of this. And I know you understand my product and our product. So why don't you just buy the company? And she said, you know, maybe, maybe I can. And so she, she went back to these guys and um, they learned about the opportunity. They liked it. And essentially she led the acquisition. And the second time around, it was so much easier for a couple of reasons. One, the experience of the failed sale the first time. What I what did I learn and how was I going to adjust? Two, the trust that I that she and I had together um, bridged a lot of difficult moments in that next sales process because she wasn't the money, she represented the money. So she wasn't making final decisions. These other guys were making the final decisions and they were, they were hard nosed and they were, uh, hard negotiators and they were very detailed oriented. And there were some very tough moments along the way. And it was her trust and my trust with each other that got us through. Um, and that was that was really essential. I, I, it, I, I, a lot of my friends who have gone through some similar um, experiences in selling their companies um, didn't have the benefit of truly trusting the the person on the other side of the table. Always questioning their motivations. Are they always trying? Are they <clears throat> is that the person trying to get a leg up on me? Are they trying to get a better deal? Are they looking for an opening? Are they looking to squeeze me out? Um, I didn't have to make any. I didn't have to question any of that with her because when she told me something i believed it to the extent that she believed it herself and so the combination of what i learned the first time around from 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 the failed sale and that's what it was it was a failed sale um, in combination with finding someone across the table who i really could trust made it made it so much easier and 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 helps us to get a good clean uh exit and sale um that second time around so what did you sell the company for after after all is said and done? I mean, again, I don't know if you want to show the actual number or 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 some kind of proxy for it. Yeah. Well, it, it was it was a it was a decent percentage of our total revenue. So at that time, if we were in the million, million dollar ballpark, it was a decent percentage of that. I, I can't say the exact number. Um, but we had some debt and and as I already said, I, I had um I didn't own the whole company. Uh, so it, th this was not a, um, a life changing event for me in the sense that financially, this was not going to be a life changing event. This was going to be an event that got me on my way. And I think that's what this comes back to for me is that I decided, um, in 2010 <clears throat> that I needed to move on, that it had been 20 years, 
uh, since I started this journey. And as much as I love being the condom king for, for a long time, I, I was ready, really ready inside to stop being the condom guy. I had two young daughters. I don't know. I, don't, I, I couldn't picture the next 10 years of my life explaining to them and to their friends about why their father was the condom guy. Uh, and, and I was looking for new horizons. I was looking for new adventures. I, I wanted to see how my own skills and passions and insights um, could be applied to other industries, other products, other ideas. I had no idea. Uh, although I, I had this wonderful p- playground that was EO, I had really just run one company for two decades and, and never had worked for anybody else. Um, and, and I didn't know what else was out there for me. So for all those reasons, um, I needed to move on. So it was life. It was a life-changing event for me in that I, I felt free. I felt free to explore and to move on. It was not a life-changing event in terms of money, but that's okay uh, because one became much more important than the other. As you as you look back over the, I guess it's almost twenty-year run that you had with Quantumania, um, how are you? How do you feel about it? Uh, sort of just qualitatively, what words would you use to characterize that period in your life? I'm proud. Um, I'm proud of the work we did. Uh, I. Yeah, we we were we were a social product um, that needed uh, needed some real innovative thinking and marketing in the midst of a real health epidemic, and I, I don't know I don't know how many late lives we may have saved I, I don't know how many uh, relationships we may have positively impacted I our stores became workshops for communities our the CDC was giving out our eight hundred number. For people to learn about condoms, um, I think I'm proud. I'm proud of of what we were able to build and do in the time in which we did it, uh, and 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 I'll always have that. Um, the 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 fortunate um, the fortunate part is that Condomania is still running strong, and it's true to its legacy, and it's true to its roots and its history, which which I helped create and. I think legacy becomes an interesting question for for entrepreneurs. It became an interesting question for me: is that what do I want to leave behind when I when I move on from this thing? And what I left behind, I think, was a brand that to this day is continuing to do good work um, in in an area where it's still very much needed. It's an amazing story, Adam. I really appreciate you sharing with us. What, what is there? Is there something you could? Uh... Is there an ask that you have uh, of of our listeners? Is there a, a website you want them to go to, or a thing you want them to do? You know, I I uh, no, I have no book to sell. I have no no website to drive people to. Um, you know, I, my life in the last four years has been very interesting, a whole nother journey. I have a whole new company outside of the world of condoms that I'm very excited about. It's all those hopes that I had that I'd be able to apply my skills and my, my knowledge and my experience into a new area, a new field uh, is happening today. And so I, I, I know I made the right decisions um, and I find myself in, in a really great place right now. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I think the ask is is simply what I didn't do enough of perhaps along the way, which is a a personal inventory of who I was at the time that I was going through these decisions. I, I like so many entrepreneurs, 
I was quick when I started thinking about selling my companies to do an inventory of my company. What do my statements look like? What are my hard assets? What can I get in the marketplace? What are other similar companies getting? And I think what I really should have done is asked all those questions first of myself. What do I want? What are my values? Where do I want to be five and 10 years from now? Is money the most important thing or is there something else that's more important? Time is precious. What am I doing with myself? Um, I have, I had a family. Was I honoring them in the decisions I was making? I, I don't think that I was um, really connected deeply um, to myself uh, during, during the early part of that whole process. And so it's a weird ask, but, but, you know, we don't like to give advice in, in EO. It's, it's advice can lead to judgment. So I, I, I wouldn't tell anybody what to do. I don't want to give them advice. All I can do is, is, is ask them to listen to my story. And in my story, uh, I wish I had done a greater inventory of myself, um, along the way to make sure that I was continuing to make the best decisions for uh, myself, my family, and my company. And to do that inventory, is there a resource, a worksheet, a website, a book that people can pick up to uh, uh, to learn how to do that personal inventory? It, it, um, I, I don't think there's any one book. Um, I, I think that surrounding myself with great people was key. Uh, the support network I had built up, not just EO, and EO was amazing, um, but also family, uh, my father, uh, my wife, um, trusted friends that are going to be there for you in the darkest of moments because um, that's the journey we're all on. That's what we all signed up for was this roller coaster of this entrepreneurial journey. Um, but the, the people that are going to be there for you. Um, and so I, I think it's it's finding those people that you can trust to be a part of that process. For me, to be a part of that process is I, I started to ask myself some very difficult questions. So um, I, I think the takeaway is, uh, for me, was understanding how important the support network can be in not only all things entrepreneurial journey, but my own personal journey. I, I, some people might call it a spiritual journey. Um, but making sure that I was surrounded by great people who did not have alternative motives um, in, in helping me to understand what was important for me and my, and my family. Well said, Adam Glickman. Thanks for joining us. John, thank you. Um, it, it was really great. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L